0: Good morning. I see you again (laughs) there. Well, it is a great morning indeed, uh, despite uh, what may be happening outside with the weather, despite what may be happening in our lives. It is a great morning because we get to come together and read John 4 43 to 54. Um, We're obviously continuing our series in the Gospel of John with this reading, and this is what it says. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judah to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. to Galilee. Amen. Now, before I really begin, I want us all to listen uh, to some beautiful uh, vocal harmonies uh, from Handel's Messiah. Specifically, we're going to listen to about 40 seconds, so you can brace yourself for how long, uh, about 40 seconds worth of Worthy is the Lamb Who Was Slain, and then I'm going to explain why I would do this. Okay. (laughs) Say, well, I wasn't in charge because he'd have listened to a lot more, I'm afraid. Ah, there is a piece of me that thinks that he can't rejoice with the words being sung like that. that there is, you know, he must be dead inside. I mean, it's truly wondrous to hear those words of Scripture being sung in such a way. However, it wasn't just the aesthetics and the enjoyment of listening to, to something as beautiful that I thought we would start with that. You see, John, the author of the Gospel, is brilliant. He is a master of craftsman. Uh, so as well as recording individual instances in the life of Christ, like this one, with his example of this unnamed official, he have got all these examples, he manages to weave them together uh, so that as a combination they say lots more, they say much, much more than any one piece does. There's lots of themes, there's lots of narrative threads that John pulls together here in this text. There is a lot going on throughout the whole of the gospel at this point. The gospel's been crafted with a care and precision, and in my mind and maybe some of yours, it is just like that rather spectacular vocal harmony that we listened to just a moment ago. You see, in the music that we heard, uh, we heard a number of voices, but each of those voices had their own space that was theirs. And when all the voices were combined, it was something far more beautiful, far more spectacular than if we just heard one voice on its own, or if all the voices had been singing in the same way. Uh, the gospel material has a lot of different things going on uh, different voices if you wish but they're all singing in harmony to deliver one beautiful message and there's a craft there is a beauty evident in what John is doing now don't get me wrong we could listen to one voice we could listen to just what was said in the text that I read and that would be beautiful but when we are unaware that there's a whole lot of things going on that culminate in this text, we're only hearing the one voice. And actually, if we step back and hear all of them, there's something really, really beautiful going on. So that's the idea. Uh, I've said it, and hopefully with Handel, tried to show what I'm trying to get at. The first voice as it were, that singing in the text, in the Gospel of John, is what I mentioned last time I was preaching from John. If you remember, I said that the Gospel is divided into four sections. Uh, The first section, uh, chapter 1 to chapter 4, it's there and it it, it concludes, obviously, with our reading. Our reading is not just the end of a chapter, it's the end of that whole section of chapter 1 to 4. And everything in those chapters, every last piece of it, Um, uh, every conversation, every testimony, every uh, witness that is given has one clear, consistent message. Every single verse, all the way through from chapter 1 to chapter 4, it is saying, Jesus is the Messiah. Another reason I chose that piece of music. But that was the point. That's what the chapter 1 to 4 is trying to do. And every single time you read about John the Baptist, or you look at the, the, the miracle in Cana, or you look at uh, Jesus uh, cleansing the temple, the whole point of it is to say, Jesus is the Messiah. We're not just supposed to be entertained by the idea of Jesus throwing people out of a temple, or, or just simply uh, impressed that he can turn uh, w- water into wine. We're supposed to see the whole point of it. And all together, every single piece of saying, Jesus is the Messiah has one voice, (laughs) chapter 1 to 4. But John, as I said, is a master craftsman. He's brilliant. And so at the same time, he provides another voice, as it were, a harmonious voice to that. Last time that I was speaking uh, on this text, uh, um, I discussed how uh, we're looking at the, the Samaritan woman and how the Samaritan woman, that piece of narrative right there, was next to Nicodemus to provide a contrast. Uh, The reason he includes the encounter of Jesus and Nicodemus and Jesus and the Samaritan woman is because they're in such sharp contrast to each other. Uh, There were many encounters that Jesus had with people, but John chose these two to include. So that we would see uh, that these two people were supposed to contrast each other. We're supposed to learn a lesson. There is a voice singing there. But he wasn't quite finished and so there is a third encounter with Jesus here, at uh, this equally anonymous official. And so we have Nicodemus, we, we have the Samaritan woman, and then we have this encounter with the official. And all three of them are put together for a reason, that we would hear a voice, we would hear a message. Now, as I noted last time, Nicodemus, well, he's named He is noted, unlike the woman. Uh, However, we can also add our anonymous official into this mix. Nicodemus is a member of the establishment. He's a member of the Jewish Supreme Court. He is Israel's teacher. He's not just acceptable. He is everything that is lauded and respected and praised in his society. By contrast, the Samaritan woman lacks any status. Uh, due to her race and her gender and her life. And the official that we have read here, he's got more in common, I suppose, with the Samaritan woman. It's entirely possible that he's actually a Roman, uh, a Roman official in the court, uh, which means that he would be going from the Jew of Jews to the Samaritan to the Gentile. Uh, To the one who has it perfect, who has it just right, to a woman who belongs to a group of people who have got a twisted and warped sense of what God is really wanting, to someone who hasn't even got a clue. Now it's possible that he's not a Gentile, although it kind of fits (laughs) rather well. But even if he wasn't a Gentile, he is a Jew who has betrayed his country by serving a king who was a client king of Rome a king who's not of Jewish descent, a king who himself has claimed to be the Messiah, the king who murders John the Baptist. And so our official here, in contrast to Nicodemus, and in common with the Samaritan woman, is outside what was expected. He he should be outside the interest of God. He should be outside the love of God. And uh, in contrast to the Samaritan woman, at least this official, he's got some sort of status. You know, he's, he's an official, but he has that status at the expense of his spiritual life. He's a man who has no rights and no claim on the real Messiah. And yet, alongside the woman, he stands in contrast to Nicodemus. So Nicodemus, who should have got it, the man who had everything, uh, wonders at the end of that point in his life, uh, he, he's bemused having spoken with Jesus, having met with Jesus, he's he's, he's asking, how can this be? But the woman believes. The official believes. And it's wonderful because by putting these three pieces together, what does our second voice say? In the context of Jesus as the Messiah, this voice says, he is the Messiah for all. It doesn't matter what gender you are, what race you are. It doesn't matter what status you are. He is the Messiah for all, not just the Jews, not just the Jew of Jews. He is there for every single one of you. But there's also a challenge, a a, a sting in the tail, because having said that, having said he is the Messiah of all, are you going to sit there bemused or are you going to believe? And that's the wonderful way in which John has put all this together. That's why Nicodemus and the woman and the official are put together as the three narratives, the three encounters which he includes. Of the thousands of encounters that could have been included, these are the three to give us that voice, that message. He is the Messiah, voice one. Voice two, he is the Messiah of all. What are you going to do about it? (laughs) Are you going to believe? And to see how those two voices work in harmony. Beautiful. He's brilliant. How he puts it all together. The fact that Jesus is the Messiah demands that each and every one of us too believe. We don't just get to read these encounters and just kind of put it down. The faith that we see in the Samaritan woman, the faith that we see in the official, is supposed to be seen in us. Jesus is the Messiah, and it demands that we too believe, that we too are saved, that alongside the Samaritan woman and the official, we can say, he is not just the saviour, he is my saviour. So that's two voices. (laughs) That's the beginning of a harmony, I think, if you have two. Uh, Simply, by the material that John chose to select, and how he put it together. And yet there's more, there's a, a third voice that comes through, Uh, because of this encounter in Cana. You see, when we read about the healing of the official son, we are to be mindful, Jesus performed many miracles. Now, we know this uh, uh, because we can read about some of them, but as John himself later on says in John chapter 20, verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. It means that John has had to very carefully choose which ones made the cut, which ones got in there. And the vast majority of them are because of the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah says, well, the Messiah, he's going to uh, bring sight to the blind. And so you see blind men getting into sight. He's going to make the lame walk. And so you'll see those miracles being included. And as we go through Isaiah, through the checklist, they're the miracles that make it, except for these two the water and the wine. Isaiah doesn't mention that. <laughs> nor does it mention this official son. John has included these two. And interestingly enough, in the first four chapters, Jesus performs many miracles, but these are the only two that are actually included, that are actually written out in full. We know back in chapter 2, when he's in Jerusalem, Jesus is performing signs, he's performing these wonders. But John doesn't include these, because he wants you to see Cana, miracle one the water, into wine. And Cana, miracle too, the official son. He's putting these two together for a reason. That's why uh, most scholars call it the, the Cana cycle, uh, which sounds like a, a terrible bike race, but um, uh, it's, it's supposed to be, you know, you're supposed to see these two together. You're supposed to read them together because they deliver a message. They deliver the same message. Uh, and it's almost like, well, if you missed it the first time, <laughs> hopefully the second time, you get the message. What is going on in this material? And I'm calling that my my third voice, because otherwise it gets very confusing. (laughs) Chapter 1 to 4, the three narratives, the two miracles. What's interesting is what these two accounts have in common. The water in wine back in chapter 2, and here the official's son. There's a theme that gets drawn out. You see, the very first validation that Jesus is the Messiah is this miracle of the water into wine, uh, the the opening act of the mission of Christ. He reveals his glory, as John writes. Crucially, though, the point of it isn't the wine. Uh, The point of it is the conclusion at the end when it says, and the disciples believed. That's the conclusion. That's the point that the text is trying to take you to. Uh, Jesus performs this miracle, but the point of it is that the disciples believe. This is actually really important to to, to grasp. It's not that the wedding had been saved, it's that the disciples had been saved. (laughs) That's the point of it. And so too, when we read uh, this uh, text in front of us this morning, we see something similar because... Although the disciples believed, there were many people who saw the miracle. The servants who held the water jars in their hands, who saw the miracle taking place, don't believe. And we have a similar thing going on here. Again, the the, the passage that we read ends not with, and the family celebrated greatly because their son was restored to them, which I'm sure they did. The passage concludes with, and they believed. It's the same idea. That's the point. That's the important bit. As as amazing, as wondrous as the miracle is, it's the belief that is the key to the whole passage. And again, many people saw the sign but failed to see the Messiah. All the crowds, all the Galileans that welcomed him in do not believe. They do not see. And so we have this combination of these two miracles coming together to give us the same message unlike all the people there who were distracted by the signs and forgot to look at the one who was being pointed to by the sign, we should be different. In fact, it's interesting John uses the Greek word for sign. He doesn't use the normal word for miracle or or, or powerful work. He uses sign because he's trying to show that these things are simply pointing to who Jesus is. Um, I, I, sometimes I think about it much in a way that um, our works validate who we are. They validate the faith that is within us. You know, faith without works is dead. Uh, and it's the idea that what we do shows who we are. It validates who we are. When Jesus does his mighty works, they validate who he is. They point to something which is pretty obvious something which the, the, the Samaritans didn't need. The Samaritans just listened to him and believed. They encountered him and believed. But in case you missed that, there's a sign of the obvious, saying, this is the Messiah. Um, sometimes we need an obvious sign, uh, to be fair. So sometimes, uh, you know, what is right there in front of you, um, you know, we can miss. Now, I don't know how many men will will, will kind of echo this, but there are many, many, many times, frequent times, I am told to go find something. And I go and I look for it. I look to the best of my ability, okay, with the glasses on. I'm looking uh, and it's not there. I mean, not that long ago, my wife says, can you pass out the the butter from the fridge? I mean, a simple request. She's got the four children there. She's juggling all of that. She's She's got some sort of toast or something. She says, can you pass me the butter? And I go to the fridge. It's not there. It is not there. I'm looking everywhere. She comes over. Not impressed. She puts her hand into the fridge and the butter materializes out of nowhere. (laughs) It was a remarkable thing. For some reason, the painfully obvious needed to be pointed out to me. Another example. uh, that This is a thing that is not just about me. Um, Last year, we were looking for um, uh, dressing up clothes for my child. Uh, He wanted a, a superhero outfit for his birthday. Fine. So I went to the toy shop and I went in and I was looking at all the different ones, and I was like, no, no, no. And I found out a Superman one. And genuinely, and this, this this astounded me, on the outside, it said in fairly large letters this outfit will not enable you to fly. <laughs> Sometimes we need a sign of the obvious. Jesus is the Messiah. It's obvious. The Samaritan's got it. And yet, he performs these things, these signs, these wonders, because sometimes we don't grasp the obvious. And one of the most painful things, one of the most difficult things, is that the people of Galilee, who welcome him in, uh, in verse 45, you know, we see, uh, you know, he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all they had done in Jerusalem at the feast, because they'd been at the feast too. They welcome him in. Because he's the miracle man. They don't see that he is the Messiah. And they separate the sign from the message, from the one being pointed to uh, the feast, uh, that's back in John 2:23, when Jesus is performing all these signs at the feast, and people are going to believe in him. they're going to say, "Yeah, you know he can do this, he, 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 can, he can do miraculous things." But when Jesus looks at their heart, he sees there is no faith in them. And this is what continues here. They're happy to flock to Jesus, the maker of wonders. They're happy to be physically healed, but they do not want to be spiritually changed. They want to be unaffected. And so Jesus is actually quite annoyed by the time we get to verse 48, when he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. There's a good reason for the exasperation of Jesus. And I think we should pay attention to this. By ignoring the ignoring the Savior, ignoring the Messiah in favor of a sign, the people have failed the test. Whenever we demand of God that He perform, that He do a miracle, no matter how much we may desperately want it, it's not God that's under scrutiny. It's not God who comes under some sort of test. It's us. It reminds me of of a a story. Um, I have a whole pile of security guard stories. Um, I I did security work for 20 years. Every summer, I've got a whole vast uh, kind of collection of them. Some are appropriate for church, and I hope that this one is. Uh, But there was an old security guard in in New York who who became famous after this because uh, he's standing there in in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, a great centre of all the different bits of art and paintings all over the walls and this young man comes in and he he looks at the art and he's obviously unimpressed and he walks around with utter disdain on his face his nose is in the air and as he is exiting he turns to the security guard and says, well I don't think much of your paintings and of course the the old security guard says well son, (laughs) it's not the paintings that are being tested it's you His failure to appreciate what they were didn't affect them. But it said everything about who he was. Our failure to grasp the Messiah says everything about who we are. Not him. Whether he performs a miracle or not, he is still God. And this is the problem we have here. This is the problem that we see in our own lives. The right way of doing it, I remember, um, Acts 20. So it reminds me of Acts 20. You have the story of Eutychus. Um, You probably remember the story. Uh, Eutychus, uh, he has come to hear Paul preach. I mean, that would have been amazing. They get to go and hear Paul preach. This is in Troas. They're in an upper room. It's very hot. It's very late. Uh, Paul has been preaching all the way through to midnight, If any of you ask that I be more like Paul, be very careful (laughs) what you're asking for because he he has started off pretty early and he has continued all the way through to midnight and so Eutychus falls asleep. That's not unusual. It does happen. I mean, I've got a good vantage point when I'm preaching and it does happen. Every now and again, people fall asleep. I mean, I'm the father of four young children. There's some nights I'm barely hanging on in there, to be honest. But Eutychus, he falls asleep by the open window. And he falls out the window and he plummets three stories to his death. Now, he's not nearly dead. He doesn't look slightly dead. Uh, The author of Acts is a doctor. Luke, when he says the boy is dead, he's dead. Until Paul picks him up in his arms and God restores life into that boy. Amazing. Now, I don't know about you, If that was me, we'd cancel whatever else we had ready. We might have some sort of praise evening. Uh, We would send Eutychus on a tour of the area, talking about the miracle and how fantastic it was. And slowly but surely, we would be so focused on the miracle, on the sign that we've forgotten all about the Messiah, the one the sign is pointing to. That's not what they do. The boys brought back to life, so they go back to the sermon. They knew what was important, what was important was to know God, was to grasp God and to grasp everything they could from Paul before he left that morning about God. That was what mattered to them. Faith mattered. That was the point. And so Paul continues all the way through to daybreak. So when it comes to applying this, well you see, I want you to be encouraged in your faith not because of miracles, but because of the one they point to. Now, I believe that God can perform miraculous things. We were singing that God can move mountains, and I believe it. I have to. I've seen it. I've, I've had the incredible blessing in my life to be witness to miraculous events, to God intervening in ways in my life I could not have imagined. But importantly... I've also been in places where I desperately wished for God to intervene, and He said no. And in either circumstance, I discovered it wasn't God that was under the test, it was me. I can't demand that He perform. He's not a cosmic Santa Claus, He's not a genie God. He's the real thing, He is the Messiah. And so I discovered that he doesn't play by my tune. And no matter how much I may wish it, (laughs) no matter when, when my heart is being ripped apart by the painful shards of living in a sinful, broken world, sometimes we can be so intent on a miracle that we fail to see God standing with us, weeping with us, producing a miraculous change within us. Because Jesus, the Messiah, rose from the dead, he is able to take a sin riddled man and make him holy. Someone spiritually dead can be made alive. Someone in open rebellion to God will bow the knee. And compared to all of that, well, anything else is chicken feed, it's nothing. Because just as we read in this passage, Jesus still brings life from the jaws of death. So if I was to sum up the lesson of the Canaan material, as it were, voice number three, apply it into our lives, it would be to encourage us to be a certain way. Um, You knew the Old Testament would come in eventually, so I just kept it till the very end. Um, In my mind, the way that we should be, we should be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because what happens is that the world will come to you at some point with the words of Nebuchadnezzar. When sickness and death grab hold of you and they whisper those words, who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? It's going to happen. if not already happening. And our response should be the same as those boys When they said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God who we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden images you have set up. Every time I read that, I feel I have to say amen. (laughs) I mean, wow, to say that to Nebuchadnezzar with the the furnace there. I mean, remarkable. But it is the same thing. When, When our lives hit those buffers, oh, my God can save me. And even if he doesn't, he's still God. And I will not bow to your God. So we can say he's able to do the miraculous and even if he doesn't, I will bow to him and no other. He is still God. Jesus is still the Messiah. He is still my Savior. I will believe and not just because of what he can do for me but simply because that is who he is. And thus pass the test. So in conclusion, hopefully you'll see why I wanted to play the music at the beginning. Because John has got all these different voices at the same time. <laughs> that first voice, though, that sang out Jesus as Messiah, it is complemented by what we see here in Cana. When chapters 1-4 to four declare he is the Messiah, it is beautifully accompanied by the Cain Miracles, which act as that confirmation, that sign, that validation of who he is. The second voice, found in the narratives of, of the Samaritan woman and Nicodemus and the official, well, they demand a response from us, because they say, yes, he's the Messiah, he's the Messiah for all. What are you going to do? It can only be heightened when we see here in our text a Messiah that brings life from death, where faith is the focus, where belief is celebrated more than the miraculous. And so as we come to this end, as it were, this, the end of this section of this gospel, we are challenged to believe. I guess like the Samaritan woman and the rest of that town, independent of signs of wonders, but purely based on the power of the word of the Messiah. And that power to change lives, to see complete transformation, and for each of us to see life where only death could have been expected. To believe. And so together, pass the test. Let us pray. Gracious Gracious Heavenly Father, we, we sang earlier, we will stand on every promise of your word. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would indeed enable us to do that, to be the people who stand not moved by the, the tides of life, the, the high points and low points of life, not moved by the circumstances we find ourselves in, not moved based on whether you do what we want or not, but standing on your promises. We thank you that you are indeed our Savior, Messiah, King, And that you're the Messiah for all. And Lord, though we believe, I pray you'd help when we don't believe. Help us to stand. Help us pass the test. In Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.